0: If you have an acute sense of calling from God, if you are a banker or if you work in management in a retail company, whatever it may be, if you understand that calling to be a calling from God for the common good, a calling from God for the flourishing of all people, that will form and shape your behaviours. If you think, as the uh, certain parts of sort of pietistic evangelicalism do, that the purpose of the wealthy lawyer is to earn more money to pay for more ministers at the front of church right. then you have destroyed the ethics of the of the Christian left.
1: Welcome to the Acton Line podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, Dan Churchwell, Acton's Director of Program Outreach, sits down with Dr. Richard Turnbull the director for the Center of Enterprise Markets and Ethics, to discuss how banks and credit unions develop a culture of savings, independence, and poverty prevention. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.
2: Welcome to Acton Line. My name is Dan Churchwell, Director of Program Outreach here at Acton. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with uh, Reverend Dr. Richard Turnbull, who is the Director of the Center for Enterprise, Markets, and Ethics in the UK. He's also the Chairman of the Trustees of the Christian Institute and he holds degrees in economics and accounting and spent over eight years as a chartered accountant with Ernst & Young. Dr. Turnbull also holds a first-class honors degree in theology and a Ph.D. in theology from the University of Durham. And he was ordained into the Church of England in 1994 and served in a pastoral role for 10 years. From 2005 to 2012, he was the principal of Wycliffe Hall, Oxford He's authored several books, including an acclaimed biography of Lord Shaftesbury. He serves as a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a visiting professor at St. Mary's University. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. It's a
0: pleasure to be with
2: you. Well, we invited you to speak. You've, you've written many uh, articles for our online... Uh, Different different venues of our online work, and, and I really appreciate that. You've also spoken for us several times as well, so it's good to have you back. Uh, we asked you to come and speak on a topic, uh, savings and poverty, how savings banks and credit unions help. Prevent poverty. Can you just give us a, a basic rundown of what, why is savings and thrift and the, these bank accounts? You know, why, why is that an interesting topic? What, what what drew you to that?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, you see, the the situation has changed completely in most of our lifetimes, and for most of us, we're used to buy now pay later. Uh, we're used to uh, debt not being seemingly a problem at all, uh, low interest rates and uh, so on and so forth. And we're also used to hearing stories about uh, whether it's government interventions in social welfare uh, or whether it's people struggling to make end meet, make ends meet. And it seemed to me that there's something missing. And it seems to me that what was missing was that sort of character formation Uh, That leads to self-help, leads to prudence, leads to independence. And it struck me that the principle of saving uh, represented uh, the development of those uh, crucial characteristics. So I got to work and did some investigations in my main area of expertise in the 19th century. Um, uh, uh, church history, which is really where my expertise uh, uh, lies. And uh, I have for many years been digging out many of the stories of these societies of uh, civil society, institutions of civil society, associations, mutual societies, friendly societies, uh, banking institutions, and I came to see that what these organisations did was actually conferred dignity on ordinary people by encouraging them to save And it meant they could save for a rainy day, they could uh, save in order to uh, aspire to more and new things.
2: Uh, and it wasn't just that everything was served up on a plate. So now, now, what era are you primarily, you know, researching? Is this the 18th century? Is this 19th? What? So mostly the 19th century. Okay. I mean, um,
0: and it was here that you had these societies and organisations and institutions really expanding, and really making a difference in local communities. And you know, I, certainly in England, uh, there were only about five banks. Uh, there's no one you can ever talk to because they never answer the they never answer the phone. Uh, they have no interest in who you are or where you live. They just want to, you know, regurgitate what their latest interest rates are, mm-hmm. uh, almost entirely, of course, in their in their favour. And what these smaller financial institutions did uh, was bring the uh, the the opportunity of saving uh, to local communities, uh, and they were often formed in towns and cities, uh, certainly across England, and I think also across America as well. And they would be run by local people, they would have independence, they would be places where people knew each other, so you would know the financial institution you were dealing with. And they would encourage people to start saving even very small amounts. Um, And it it sort of formed and shaped the, the character of the
2: individual well i grew up using a, a federal credit union and, and those kinds of things and uh, in fact i remember just last year my my father lamenting that his his loan officer was retiring yeah, exactly. so for 30 years he had had the same officer at the bank that he, he could go in and talk to, and she was she was fantastic, and he, he lamented
0: Absolutely. that she was retired. And, of course, she knew
2: him. Yeah. So she yeah. knew
0: his history. She knew his story. She knew the challenges. Mm-hmm. She knew the times when he had money coming in and the times when he needed, yeah. you know, taking loans for houses or whatever it was. It was a personal, relational
2: it really was. Uh, uh, so, situation. So contextually then, you know, I, I mean obviously our, our average listener would know you run to the bank. You know, I mean most people can do mobile banking now, right? Sure, it's all on <laughs> uh, the phones. But when you do need to run to the bank, you know, everybody has a little bit of a visual on that. What, what would it look like in the 19th century? I mean what when, when people – because obviously paychecks probably weren't as – or give us a little sure. context.
0: Well, I think the best example is uh, the, uh, the idea of the, the school – So the schools which were established for the poor uh, by people like Lord Shaftesbury and they would be established uh, to deal with many of the poorer people in society to give them the opportunity for education. And there are pictures uh, you can look at of these schools and there are uh, archive material and journals you can read. But here's the thing. It wasn't just a school. There would be two other, in particular, crucial characteristics to these schools, often run by churches and volunteer, Christian associations, Christian societies. Uh, They would usually employ someone who would teach the children a trade. Tailors, shoemakers, those were very common trades in order to provide them with some opportunity for development in life. And equally, they would have a bank. And so you have this... School where you would have the teaching of a trade, uh, teaching the children to to read and to write and teaching them the scriptures and teaching them the faith, and a bank where they would be encouraged to save. All of those three things together is a much more holistic view uh, than we have today and form their... Sort of character and gave them the opportunity to to progress.
2: Yeah, that that is fascinating. What would they? Is this what you were referencing in your lecture? Like the penny bank? Yes. Is that what...
0: So the penny bank. I mean, it's a strange name, isn't yeah. it? It's all a bit Victorian in that sense. Uh, but the idea of the penny bank was that even some of the more uh, usual savings banks had a minimum deposit, mm-hmm. but if you are poorer you might not be able to afford that minimum deposit. And so they developed this idea of the penny bank, where literally they would accept the deposit of a penny. Um, uh, But doing that every week, and you begin to build up a balance, and they would often have a relationship with a savings bank in the town where they would then put their deposits, accumulated deposits, uh, on deposit.
2: And was this fairly widespread? It was. Okay. Yes,
0: it was very widespread. I mean, the first ones actually developed in Scotland, Um, But very quickly spread across England, particularly in the towns and cities where you had large numbers of people coming in for work, sometimes issues of employment and wages, issues of illness, and therefore encouraging people to take
2: responsibility. is is it fair maybe not is this i mean is this an innovation if you will during the industrial revolution i mean because the people coming into the towns children needing you know the poor kids needing labor you know and work sure. that were that was that interconnected in yeah, this period
0: it was and i suppose what what happened was before the big movements of population that you had with the industrial revolution mm-hmm. most people living in Rural areas in villages, which were much smaller, might be 30 people might be 50 people. And basically, everybody looked after each other. And if somebody was in need, they would be provided for the problem was when you had these large scale movements into the city where you would have 10s of 1000s of people in a very small area. The question was, how are you going to bring those principles into those urban situations and urban settings?
2: And you mentioned virtue multiple times too in, in the lecture, which will be available online, and we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to that. Um, that uh, you know, virtue, the idea of virtue and institutions, like it, it was very important to kind of link the two. That save why, why is savings a virtue? Yeah. Why, yeah. why, why, is, yeah. why is that?
0: Yeah. Well, saving is a virtue because it, it's about taking responsibility for your own development and future, taking responsibility for your own welfare and your family's welfare. Family also very important part of this uh, equation. Uh, it enables you to deal with uh, the shocks to the system when you sometimes need to draw on Uh, the savings you put aside for a rainy day, or if something has gone wrong in your life, the ability to do that and to care for your family. And saving encourages you to view that as your prime responsibility. And you know, Dan, the problem is we today just fall into this trap, really, of thinking the responsibility is somebody else's. Um, The responsibility is the state's, or the responsibility is... And it's never my fault anyway. And actually what saving does is it... Creates a character. Creates character. It allows you to develop prudence. It allows you to develop that idea that you have uh, responsibilities mm-hmm. and personal responsibility for yourself and your family.
2: And it. I think you mentioned as well that it, it was like a future orient because you. They were saving up. I think you mentioned like a, a, a stove or you know you, they would be saving up for something larger, and it, it would it would prevent you from spending your money right away if you had a goal.
0: Yes. Well, and and, I mean, isn't that true for us? I don't know about you, but I remember as a kid, you know, I'd be saving my money in order for something that I wanted. But I also remember my family, you know, who were uh, not a particularly well-off or wealthy family. If there were things that my parents felt we needed to improve our life as a family, they saved yeah. In order to buy, they didn't just go and take debt. In order to
2: buy, it's kind of a delayed, delayed gratification it's, of some kind, yeah, or yeah,
0: yeah, you know, but, and, and, it, and you know, it, it encourages you to be patient, encourages you not to expect things immediately,
2: it encourages you to work for the return. So, I mean, maybe the flip side of that, though, is I mean, I could flip out, you know, my credit card. And, and just buy it, you know, right now, you know, and, and if if somebody is – or debit, let's say debit card, you know, yeah. but credit card, if credit card is actual debt, right? And um, do, do you think the invention of the credit card has limited that or, or – or, uh, acted like a retardant to to that that idea of virtue?
0: I think it links to the idea of financial education. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, I use a credit card like everyone else does. Um, And I think if you have got that financial education that encourages you to understand what you're doing when you use your credit card, that's fine. But it is interesting that even today, a lot of debt management agencies or debt management societies who are seeking to help people who have got into debt, one of the first pieces of advice is to cut up the credit card. So whether you spend it on a credit card, a debit card, or in cash, you have to understand
2: that you are spending. It's almost like the fundamentals of money, how money works. Exactly.
0: You know, and what we – I don't know, again, I don't know about the US, but certainly in the UK, if you talk to my own children, we have four children, and they're all highly critical of the sort of stuff they received in schooling about citizenship and about – uh, uh, you know, life together in society. It was all woke stuff. Mm. And they say to me, why weren't we taught how to budget? Why yeah. weren't we taught how financial products worked? That's what we need to do.
2: Yeah, and, and there are some practical things that have been uh, – or have gone by the wayside in uh, – that, that are very pivotal to, to societal health. Do you think – you know, you mention a lot institutions and virtues um, – Is it even sometimes? I think when I hear and and the history is very clear, right? You you do a great job, but is it even possible to have? I mean, when when you get Citibank, you know, from you know the the banking centers here Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, you know, they're 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 all over, but it a lot of them are are, are hyper segmented, but they're they're far away, and like you said, you get a call center. I was on a call center the other day. Um, It it was a bill I was paying. for one of my – for a doctor's appointment and their billing was in the Philippines.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: And I, I literally called the Philippines yeah, – I didn't know it. You know, It was an American number but you call it – connects to the Philippines. And then the person I got on the phone said, oh, there's only one person in our office that handles this account and they're out. You know, but, but there's absolutely I mean we want to talk about distance right they, they don't know it's it's really hard to get clear answers etc so is, is it even possible you know those concepts of virtue the concepts of institutions local communities knowing one another the trust that that engenders I mean is, is there a nostalgia there I mean we, we look back and say that was a but is it even possible sure um Sure. What are the dangers?
0: always oh, is this nostalgia or a romanticism of what uh, took place in the past? And and clearly, you can't just reinvent and you can't just copy uh, what has taken place in the past. My point really is that the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction, and maybe we need both. I want I want to be able to bank on my phone. I want to be able to sort of pay my bills on my uh, on my online account. Um, I, I want to be able to do things online, quick and easy too. My point is that by losing the other side of the equation, the locality, the relationships, the community, we lose something significant. So I want to bring back some of those principles. I don't just want to sort of, you know, pretend you can reinvent what happened in the, in the 19th century. Um, but I think uh, we've become so dependent on big, global, national, governmental actually, we need to return some responsibility to our local communities. Mm -hmm. And if we did that, I think you would see an outpouring of philanthropy, you would see an outpouring of responsibility, and an outpouring of people really getting stuck in in their local communities.
2: Well, like I said earlier, we will put a link in the show notes. This is a – it was a fascinating talk. So if you want to hear more, please go and watch the YouTube lecture uh, of Dr. Turnbull. But I I want to shift a little bit just briefly – when I read your bio, you know, every time I read your bio, and I'm like, wow, you have such an interdisciplinary background. You you have business, you have um, a degree in theology, you you have a obviously management experience through both nonprofits and just through your clergy work. I mean, give us a sense of your journey, yeah. you know, through those those different things. Yeah, it's funny,
0: isn't it? Looking back, you can see when you look back how God has guided you in different ways over your life. You're not always aware of it uh, at the actual time. And I, got to, you know, I started out as a young guy in my 20s, uh, going to work in the city of London. I came from a very normal, ordinary, humble background, actually, in a mining district in the north of England. And I was the first member of my family ever to go to university. Oh, wow. And I headed off to university, I studied economics, and I wanted to go and work in the city of London. And I didn't know how to do that. I had no contacts, i didn't have didn't just didn't know what to do. so uh, ended up uh, training as 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 an accountant. But I'd become a Christian, I became a Christian at the age of twenty one. And I was forever asking that question of how does my faith and what I've studied as economics uh, relate to each other? Um, and there were a number of answers available that I found very unsatisfactory. Uh, usually, they were very corporatist answers or they were very sort of socialist answers, if one's blunt about it. Mm. Uh, and I, I wanted something more deeper. I wanted something more of a discussion around values and purpose uh, uh, and so on. Um, and it was really, you know, life went on from there. And then when I came to study theology, I was able to use that ability, if you like, or that knowledge, to apply more precisely some of that thinking into the economic sector. And really, I, I, I came out, uh, you know, interdisciplinary work in in uh, in in the academic sector is is. Quite honestly, frowned upon. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, they're kind of, you know, marginally tolerate it, but you're kind of, you know, you're not loved by anybody. You know, you know, you're not, you're not pure enough for any, any. For sure. But to me, I think the wonder of it is, hey, can we bring together our economic thinking, our theological thinking, our philosophical thinking? in order to build a vision uh, for a society that is built on, you know, God's vision for all of these disciplines. Um, and I think compartmentalization, where it all gets put into silos, is terribly, terribly disastrous. So econ if I'm sorry, if I could just carry on a moment or two, economics is a good example of that. So when I studied economics... Uh, it was at least some discussion took place over purpose mm. now economics at uh in the academic world is primarily mathematics math. yeah absolutely I mean, econometrics or... you know it's just econometrics and yeah. you know well if the equation says x it's x but what about the purpose behind x that's what i
2: sure.
0: uh, want to uh, want to ask
2: no that that's great and and you've um, you've written uh for us and in other venues and in for the um, Center for Enterprise Markets and Ethics, I mean, you're you're run, helping to run a center that deals with this as well. But you've written articles for us on the purpose of work, um, vocation, kind of your calling. In that, did did those questions come up when when you took your degrees in theology, and then you 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 became you know you worked for uh, in the Church of England as an ordained minister? Did those questions come up in lay people? I mean, were you able to use that ability and that knowledge? Yeah in your practical ministry?
0: Yes. Um, I, I, I remember uh, when I was the pastor of uh, a church, I remember making an announcement at the front of church that I was going to hold a meeting uh, the following well, two weeks, two weeks hence, uh, for anyone involved in business who wanted to come and discuss the issues that they faced in business. And I went home and I said to my wife, I completely messed up giving out that notice. I wasn't clear. I wasn't clear about purpose. I garbled it. It's going to be a disaster. More people turned out to that meeting than any other church meeting I'd ever had. Why? Because they they said to me, for the first time, they heard from the front of the church a minister who understood some Of the dilemmas that they faced on a daily basis. Uh, What they normally heard, uh, not from me, but from uh, a lot of churches, was uh, simply business being dirty, business being nasty, business being horrible. Whereas I think God's purpose in business is to help people to flourish, uh, 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 and and so on.
2: Yeah, and I I mean, I had the ability to teach in a... uh... Uh, business school in the Pacific Northwest. And I I taught business and social ethics. And, you know, I when for three years, I I was able to do it. Loved it. Absolutely. Fell in love with teaching then. And uh, when you'd go around the community, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I work for, you know, this university. What do you teach? Business ethics. And like, oh, isn't that an oxymoron, you know? And and obviously that you see, I mean, they're Almost not daily, that's probably a little, a little much, but weekly, some sort of business malfeasance. Or, you know, is um, what what do you think gives people that you said, you know, they they struggle with, or or you were taught, you know, that business is inherently dirty, or you just can't do good in business? Why do you think that exists?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a disastrous uh, consequence. Uh, of two things, really. Uh, Firstly, certainly in the UK, the tendency of church leaders uh, to be more socialist Mm. and effectively have a corporatist uh, mentality and therefore lose sight of... uh, God's purposes for uh, the uh, the common kingdom, if you like. And actually, even in the world that I come from, which was a world of evangelicalism and so on, the tendency in that world to so divide the spiritual from the secular that the secular is viewed as evil and dirty. But if the secular, so-called, is evil and dirty, then we're saying that God is condemning where we spend most of our life as meaningless. Well, I don't believe that God does that. I believe God has... Uh, purpose and intent uh, behind uh, all of those things.
2: Yeah. And it's also on the flip side too, you can hyper-spiritualize. And I think you even wrote in one of your articles, I I think you used the term pietistic. Yes. That if you hyper-spiritualize the other side, yes. that, that um, it just – it does obviously minimize just – Obviously, if, if it's hyper spiritual to, to work as a missionary or a school te- Christian school teacher or a pastoral ministry, something like that is is just inherently better.
0: Yes, but what about a banker? Right. Uh, what a, What about a, or any other example yeah. you'd care to use? And that's why vacation is so important because vacation is the beginning of ethics. Mm-hmm. If you are if you have an acute sense of calling from God, if you are a banker or if you work in management in a retail company, whatever it may be, if you understand that calling to be a calling from God for the common good, a calling from God to for the flourishing of all people, that will form and shape your behaviours. Uh, if you think, as, the, uh, you, as certain parts of sort of pietistic evangelicalism do, mm-hmm. that the purpose of the wealthy lawyer is to earn more money to pay for more ministers at the front of church. Right. Then you have destroyed the ethics of mm-hmm. the
2: of the Christian life. Mm, that's a good way of putting it too. Yeah. Um, and, and if you're around, you know, Acton speaks uh, to these as well. We've written you know, or, or sponsored books, you know, on these topics, and we have conferences that speak to these topics. Uh, so it's, it's very near and dear to our mission as well. The, these you know underlying vocational ideas. And to get them right, or, or to th- at least think about them in the in the right ways, because they are complex, right? Sure. I mean, very in the modern, the modern world, how how business or free enterprise or capitalism, however you know different people express it. Um, let, let's segue though. Let, let's use uh, this as a as a jumping off point to talk about those principles. What you just laid down, though, in light of what's just happened, you know, COVID has seemed to uh, COVID broke. A lot of things, you know, work from home. I mean we could we could have a whole litany of what it seemed you know, the last two years has done to our thinking in a lot of these areas. And just before COVID, um, uh, David Graeber, an author, uh, he, he wrote a lot about debt and he, he's an anarchist and he, he helped uh, – um, with the Occupy Wall Street, like he coined part of that term, Occupy Wall Street. So he's, he, he's not a friend of free markets or anything like that. But he he made he was prescient in, in some of his thoughts. And I, I, I think I gained a lot of uh, respect for him through reading some of his work, even though he is kind of a radical and an anarchist. But one of them, his book was on debt. And then the second book was on um, jobs. And I'll just abbreviate it here. It's called BS Jobs. And he talked a lot about the modern economy – and again, this was right, you know, pre-COVID, is built on a whole layer of jobs that are almost unnecessary. Like they, they've created largely white collar, uh, you know, some lawyers. I mean, he he just lists a whole litany of jobs that seem the way he presents meaningless. Like the, like they're just paper pushers. Like if if that person uh, think of the movie Office Space yeah. or the show, which came from the UK, um, The Office. I don't know if you ever watched that when It sure. was popular in the UK, but you know, we in America hugely. Hugely popular show. It seems like a lot of work is just merely mundane or meaningless. What what do you sense that the modern vibe of yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I understand that. And I, 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 I take what he said. And it's always important to read people you disagree with. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you'll never understand why people Absolutely. are saying things different from, from what you think. I mean, you know, Dan, I'm sure I've always had the problem. I've never understood why anyone thought anything different from what I think. I mean, <laughs> I I mean surely. No. It's always important, isn't it, to engage with those who think uh, differently. But I think I would want to uh, challenge to some degree uh, some of those uh, presumptions. I think part of our job as Christians who understand... That God has created this world. God has given us a mandate to work. Uh, It is something that all people uh, are to do as part of their flourishing and so on. I think one of the challenges is helping everybody to see their job as a thing of beauty helping everybody to see their job as creative, helping everybody to see their job as part of that wider picture. Now you might say, oh, that's all naive, that's all sort of, you know, that doesn't help the people who are doing routine jobs. Well, we're all different. Everybody's different. We need different types of job in an economy, although generally I'm in favour of a high-wage Uh, uh, high-wage, high-skilled economy, you still need entry-level jobs. You need to provide uh, ways in and ways up. And obviously, if you believe in the dignity of the human individual, as we do as Christians, there are important things to learn about how work is designed and how work is discharged and so on. But I still want to encourage the person who cleans the office or the person who cleans the factory or the person who cleans the restrooms in the factory to see their job as having dignity, mm-hmm. as having purpose, and contributing to human flourishing.
2: Yeah, and I wonder if they would say, you know, do you think about absolutely – I mean that's, it's, it is important, but that, that seems that we're back to like a personalist or a very – that's a very individualist way of yes. thinking. And are there? I, I think if I don't want to put words in his mouth, but Graeber or others would say, but there are structure – You know, you you can individually have an attitude that is is positive and go towards work and you know, say I'm doing this for the glory of God or you know whatever language you want to use. But the uh, the concept of there could be is it possible in your opinion that there are structural ills that even though that person has that individual attitude. The actual work actually is damaging.
0: Well, I think I'm a yes and a no okay. on, on on that. In that, I don't think I'd want to say there are no structural issues. I think that's probably a bit naive to think there are no structural issues. But I also wonder whether structural issues are sometimes used as an excuse, and therefore, uh, actually, what we need to do is encourage all uh, businesses or companies all structures and manners of working as affirming the dignity of their employees and affirming the dignity of their individuals at every level. So, yes, sure. But what structures are we talking about? Uh, Are we talking about, well, what about, you know, the structure of... Regulation or government, maybe we should have a little bit less of those things. Yeah. Um, it's often used as an excuse, I think, mm-hmm. to say there are stru- structural problems, um, and I think structural problems can be overcome uh, by, you know, by by a positive outlook and a positive attitude. Hmm. I mean, that may be a bit naive, but that, sure. that sort of, you know,
2: sure. Another thing we're, we're you know, post-COVID now. Thinking through in America, um, it's called the Great Resignation, and I don't know, you know, if, if it's the same in, in the UK or not. But uh, there's been a a large percentage of people, obviously, that lost jobs th- through the COVID um, upheaval. But then people that are willingly changing jobs and and kind of the churn of the job market, you know, regardless of inflation or you know minimum wage issues. I mean, there's a lot of churn. A lot of that is now coming out statistically. It, it's like below white collar. There is some churn in white collar, but it's less so as the data becomes more clear. But is, is it the same in the UK or what, what are your thoughts on, you know, this? It, it seems like it broke, something broke about yes. work.
0: Yes, you're right. Uh, and it is the same in the UK okay. and the same terminology is oh, it used is? Okay, okay. in terms of the great resignation and so on. Interestingly, they've just announced the latest unemployment figures in the UK, the lowest for decades – So there's very low unemployment. And so the question you've got to ask is what's going on then in this churn? And one way of looking at it, I don't necessarily accept this in in its entirety, but one way of looking at it is that because of the work from home emphasis in COVID uh, and because of the, the need For a slightly different outlook, I suppose, to make things happen, people have reassessed what's important. Mm -hmm. They've reassessed uh, uh, how to gain uh, satisfaction from work-life balance. Exactly, that was the word I was looking for: work-life balance and the satisfaction across a whole range of things. I'm, I accept that, but I'm a little sceptical. And the reason I'm a little sceptical. Is that it 's all very well for people like me and for people like you who most of our lives have had elements of flexibility and that 's a good thing, sure I'm in favor of flexibilities and I've occasionally I sometimes work from home, I sometimes work from office i 'm sometimes out and about, but I have a privilege to do that, and many of the people you were talking about earlier in the more mundane and routine right. jobs don 't have that privilege to be able to do that yeah. um, and so i 'm slightly skeptical about whether we 're Having a little bit of, um, this could be very controversial, middle class sort of, you know, kind of laziness uh, going on. And actually, you know, the people who have been working at home kind of think, yeah, yeah, that's quite like like knocking off at four o'clock. Right. Um, And quite like not, you know, oh, I won't bother doing anything on Friday afternoons or Monday mornings. And I think that's a dangerous thing. And I think it's dangerous for creativity, for innovation and all of those things.
2: And did you say in the U- UK, there there's some differences in the like the civil servants they're, they're doing some studies or it's seeming, yes. seeming to affect service? Is, yes. that, is that right? So,
0: so obviously, every sector is affected by sure. this whole change of culture and are dealing with it in different ways. And certainly, and I'm uh, more than relaxed about this, certainly there's been an increase in flexibility mm-hmm. and that's, that's a good thing, I'm sure. But by and large, I would say the private sector uh, in the UK is returning to the office, um, maybe with more flexibility, absolutely, but certainly an expectation that you'd be in the office on a regular basis uh, and the majority of your time Uh, During the week, and of course, the advantage of that is it's the conversations you have in the office that spark the creativity. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the and the mentoring and the training can only take place when two people are actually together. It doesn't work over Zoom. Yeah, Um, or at least it's highly different. It's It's very different. Yeah. 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 Now, the interesting thing is that in many aspects of our government service there seems to be a permanent stay-at-home attitude from the civil servants. And that's causing problems in service delivery, although they deny it, um, but uh, uh, there appears to be a a correlation. And it's also causing a problem in the delivery of government services in that the government of the day, the ministers, the, the, the civil servants who are meant to be doing the job aren't there. And it does leave me rather suspicious... Of the nature of certain elements of our public sector uh, and those who are employed in the public sector, and um, frankly, I think they need a kick up the backside.
2: Am yeah. I allowed to say that on an accent <laughs> podcast? Sure. Uh, yeah, uh, when you say it with that accent, it just sounds <laughs> you know inherently better. Um, the so, so let me let me think about it this way though too because it's interesting when we have. The work from home and, like you said, we, we've had the privilege of being flexible. I mean, I'm a beneficiary of that. Um, I've had some, you know, neck and, and spine issues over the last few months where I've had to, you know, work from home a little bit. And uh, um, I don't think it's a HIPAA violation to say, you know, I'm talking about my own medical issues. Um, but COVID taught me how to run a team. I manage a team here at Acton, right? And, and we have great – You know interactions, but we're project based, and and COVID really taught us all the tools or gave us the tools. We have Zoom and you know all all the whole nine yards, and so over the last few months, as I've had to overcome some hurdles uh, medically, I've been able to carry on and and manage the and do well. And so there there I know there are obvious benefits. But on the flip side, like I, I think you said, you mentioned it. It's more the oversight, or you know, are the people actually doing the work? Is is that your main concern? Yeah, is, it's
0: it's that, and also there's two things. There's that. I mean, I'm uh, I'm in favor of all that flexibility, yeah, and of course, yeah. any decent employer will always respond to the needs of their Fair employees. Enough, yeah, yeah. Um, I think there are two things. Firstly. Uh, it's that. It's the oversight, but secondly, it's also the creativity. Mm-hmm. Where do ideas come from? Yeah. Uh, and ideas come from engagement uh, with people, the, the chatting that goes on. And I suppose the other thing was that mentoring and training. Um, two of my uh, sons-in-law are both senior accountants. I'm afraid it runs a bit in the family. <laughs> the, the conversation around our table can get really interesting. <laughs> I'm sure post balance sheet events, <laughs> yes, are the and those are they, hot topics. And they would say one of their prime responsibilities is training the new folk coming in uh, to the firms and they can't do that other than being with them and being uh, one-to-one.
2: Yeah, and, and, and Marshall McLuhan, you know, media ecology, you know, taught us that uh, the medium is the message or, you know, that, that, and, and some people argue that that's a positive or negative or, or a moral claim. But I think what a lot of people miss in that is that it's simply different. Exactly. I mean, whether or not anyway, – it, it, yeah. a, it's a huge drawn-out discussion, very interesting discipline. But the, the idea that people think that face-to-face communication is exactly the same if you do it on Zoom, it's just false. Absolutely. And
0: there are many advantages with Zoom. I've used them to run events with my own centre, which I couldn't have done other than that. But you know, we had our first in-person event uh, uh, about two months ago uh, in in three years. Our first in-person event. And the first thing I said to the people who were gathered, maybe 30 people, isn't it marvellous that we're back together again? That buzz in that room. And that chorus of approval was, yes, we want to engage with these ideas with one another around right. the table.
2: Right. Yeah, those are really unique. Um, and it, it's a strange time, too, because you had this unprecedented outlay, at least in, our gen- in my generation and, and probably two generations, of money. Of yes. the printing of money and the and the 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 stimulus packages and the you know the things attached to the governmental relief packages um, and now we're you know dealing with some major I mean yeah. the R word you know is is being thrown around you know are we going to enter a recession and and particularly in America but it usually where we go the world goes at, at times so it you know is this recession around the corner but on it, it, it's so when I read this I get whiplash. Because last year American philanthropy hit a record of 471 billion dollars wow. given, and, and this is private. This is private philanthropy, and so that that um, you know is, is coming up against the non-discretion or discretionary spending of the American government outside of military spending. Yeah. That it rivals yeah. that that number, and so. There is still wealth, and, and, and some people argue. You know, it, it's it's uh, the numbers are interesting. You know, are the rich getting richer? The, this mm. kind of conversation. Are those oh. the same kind of conversations yes. in the UK? They,
0: they, they are, um, and interestingly, let me just tell you briefly about this event we held. Uh, so, uh, our centre, Centre for Enterprise Markets and Ethics, uh, it was an event built around the morality of government debt. Mm. Now, the reason we held that event was government debtors mushroomed, uh, perhaps for reasons we understand through COVID. I mean, I think probably whichever side of the economic arguments you want, you probably accepted there was going to have to be some support and some government spending to get through something we really knew nothing about. But nobody is now asking the question of, well, what is the moral case? For continuing to accumulate large amounts of government debt, because primarily all government debt does—I mean, you and I can have the benefit of the spending, but our children have to pay for it—and mm-hmm. people aren't asking that sort of intergenerational question. And if you think of inflation as well, it's uh, sort of spawned inflation. All of this printing of money and saving of money—not uh, so printing of money and spending right. of, of money—and inflation is a highly destructive. Uh, Force. Uh, And, you know, from a moral perspective, you have to ask about that. And a lot of people. Uh, have not experienced inflation at anything like the levels we're seeing now in both oh, yeah. the UK yeah. and the US. Well, I remember from my 20s, yeah. when inflation was 20, 25% in the UK, and the value of money was being destroyed. And uh, again, a moral principle, let's get back to understanding
2: the value of money. Well, I was talking to a friend uh, just last week. And he said, you know, he laughed, he's several generations older than I am. And, and he he mentioned, you know, we I was talking interest rates. And he was, you know, well what what's the interest rate on in your house? And we talked about it. And he was like, I remember I, my first interest rate was eighteen and a half percent. Yeah. And yeah. you know, we're complaining about you know it's getting to five and a half, six. Exactly. Of course eighteen and a half percent is wonderful
0: if you're the saver. Right. <laughs> and not so good if you're the borrower. Right.
2: Yeah, that, that <laughs> full circle back to the uh, original topic. But the the inflation at um it's virtually stalled America's real estate market, yes. which on one level, our, our I would argue our, our real estate market was artificially hot.
0: Uh, I mean, this is exactly the same as the UK.
2: Is it? Uh, so we're just heading into a stall in the
0: real estate yeah. market. But actually – that probably did need to be some form some re- of correction. Yes, yes. I, I, even we're though we're I, of the same even, mind. Even like. though I've benefited from of from, course. from that uh, real asset inflation, yeah. there's a reality of I'm not sure this is a really good thing. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're just at that same nexus as mm-hmm. as, the, as you are in the U.S.
2: So so a friend of mine just sold their house last weekend um, here in, in the greater suburbs of, of Grand Rapids, and uh, the house... You know, it was a great house, great family house, and a young couple purchased it. Well, they they had uh, – I think he said they had lost bids on 10 other houses. Wow. And so they went to their parents and yeah. said, would you buy it for cash? Yeah. We're seeing – we're competing against all cash. Yeah. Even though they had yeah. great credit, they had – you know, they could they could purchase a home, um, the all cash, just the quick closing, et cetera. Yeah. And so their parents ponied up money and then they wrote the offer in such a way – they had almost 40 offers on the house in 48 hours. Wow. And then it went for tens of thousands of dollars above, over above the, asking the ass. Price. Yeah, and this couple. So it it's almost irregardless of markets. Yes, like like the, the market doesn't. I mean, it almost doesn't even play in. They they just want to move here.
0: It's a really interesting story because exactly the same in the UK. And it has enormous implications because what we're finding is young people being squeezed out Mm -hmm. of the housing market for all the reasons that you just described so that the average age at which a person acquires their own house is going up and up and up and up and is now in their mid-30s now. Mm -hmm. If you want a society that is aspirational, if you want a society that is effectively a property owning democracy yeah. and those were the principles that brought Margaret Thatcher to power in 1979 uh, for more than 10 years, I mean probably our greatest Prime Minister uh, since the Second World War, it was because she understood the importance of access to the housing market for young people, for the aspirations of young people and a property owning democracy yeah. and if that is under threat now, we threaten actually the whole concept Concept of our society yeah. and uh, and the whole concept of a sort of a well, like I said, a property owning democracy,
2: and it builds in a fragmentation because you can't build strong families and if the, exactly, if and you end up with alienation and yeah. instability, yeah. and you
0: end up with the door being opened for the sort of the socialism as the as the easy answer,
2: mm. you know. Mm. Yeah, it seems like we're in a lot of the same um, uh, economic settings. Uh, well. So, so I am absolutely fascinated by your study. What, what are some things you're seeing in the future? Maybe either for, you know the UK or just broader, you know, implications for the center uh, of enterprise markets and ethics. You know, where is is there a hope? Are are you studying a certain kind of thing, or where do you hope to yeah. to take the center in the in the near yeah. future?
0: Well, here's one big thing. Uh, there may be other things, but here's one big thing that is actually That's bubbling at the moment, um, and it kind of builds on some of the things we've been talking about. We've just undertaken. Uh, I mean, at great cost, a professional, massive survey of opinion around markets and values. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're about to uh, publish the results. It was UK-based and it was uh, aimed at the UK market. And the big thing we've discovered is loss of confidence in the market. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the big thing, the big task that we have to do is re-articulate and re- re-win a the argument for a market economy uh, going forward. And I think people assume, uh, and you cannot assume, Uh, We've seen in this survey a loss of confidence in the market, even among business.
2: Are there one or two nuggets Um, that you could, you know, is is there a reason? I'm sure it's multivariant, but are there? So two things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Two nuggets, if you like. Uh, One is the complete loss of confidence in the market. Well, maybe that's too strong to say complete loss of confidence, but the loss of confidence in the market among business leaders, particularly the leaders of large businesses, where we found high percentages believing that business should be taxed more and that executives were paid too much. Uh, And you kind of think, well, if they don't really believe in what they're doing, what hope is there for the future? The other one was a massive divide between churchgoers and church leaders. Uh, Mm. uh, And churchgoers, if you like, Christian people Mm -hmm. going week in, week out, having a much more positive view of the role of business, the attractiveness of business, uh, much more positive view of the need for a low tax economy, whereas church leaders, it was all wokeism. Uh, high tax, uh, political campaigns and business, okay. uh, publishing pay ratios – uh Et cetera etc cetera. so those are the two big things some lo- loss of confidence in the market from business leaders and this divide between church leaders and churchgoers so we have to win the argument again
2: yeah yeah we, um will that be you said uh, you're about to publish that is that will that become uh, publicly available yes or? it will
0: be publicly okay. available and uh literally we're we're about to send it to the printers but I love it uh, uh we're just at the final of proofreading basically okay. <laughs> well I, I can't wait to
2: see more when you uh, um, will you will you have follow-on uh, programming at all about yes, that or – we will.
0: We will have follow-on programming Good. and we will have some follow-up work yeah. that we will do going forward. I'm um, sure
2: that will help set the rudder a little bit for yeah. the, the near future. Absolutely.
0: And it would be interesting to think about how it relates to the U.S. as well. Yeah. Having done it in the U.K., you know, what would be uh, what would be the outlook in the U.S.? I don't know the answer to my question. It, was just, yeah, it would be I interesting know. to think about.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of organizations, you know um, – Undertaking, I know there's a group at Duke Divinity School that have, that have done some of that work recently, on um, you know enterprise. Yep. What, what does it look like to bring enterprise back into yeah. the conversation? And. So, it, yeah, there's good work being done, but I think there's a lot more to do. And it, it's such a, a pleasure to, to hear what's going on there in the UK and your participation with many organizations here. So thanks again for joining us. And uh, we look forward to many years of engaging on these topics with you.
0: Thank you, Todd.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at Acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja.